Today we're speaking with Sarah Nolish, CEO and founder of Agthentic, an agriculture technology strategy firm, as well as Tenacious Ventures, Australia's first dedicated VC firm. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. So to start with, could you tell us a little bit about Agthentic? Sure. So we are a strategy and an advisory firm working at the intersection of technology and agriculture. And I guess if I summarize the kind of reason for being is we want to help more innovators have an impact in food and agriculture. And we know that technology alone kind of isn't enough because we've seen too many technologies be developed and kind of pushed into the industry because they're exciting, cool technologies, but unfortunately, maybe no one wants them or they don't solve a real problem. And so we kind of bridge the gap between the innovation, these new technologies and business models and their adoption or their ultimate impact. And we do that in a range of ways, working on projects and, and reports and, and in an advisory capacity with different clients, but all around making sure that those innovators and their innovations can have an impact. Understood. And so was the main reason that there was that issue within the market and like the mis- lack of balance around just people just weren't talking to people in agriculture enough? Yeah, there's that kind of classic, you know, customer discovery. People don't know what what farmers actually need or want. I would say another reason is that it, it can be really tough to bridge the gap. So you've got people in cities largely who have ideas for technologies and innovations and new businesses, but maybe they didn't grow up on a farm or they haven't spent a lot of time on farms. And so while their idea seems good when they're sitting having a you know latte, you know, in, in a city, it doesn't actually stack up when you're on the farm or somewhere in the supply chain and yet getting there and understanding how it actually works can also be hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to call a farmer and say, hey, can I come talk to you about your problems? But you know, they're busy and, and they speak a different language about farming, not about tech. And so it's actually not easy to overcome some of those barriers. No, 100%. I actually grew up on a farm in Ireland and uh, just, just talking to my mother sometimes can be like a bit of translation. So Yeah, it's a totally different language. And, you know, while the tech people can go deep on tech stuff and the farmers can go deep on farming stuff, ne- neither actually is, is understanding each other, which can always be a challenge. And so you're bringing that perspective of both. Like, what was your background that enables you to bridge that gap? Yeah, I guess my background's kind of in this translator role, and I've done it in a few different areas. But specifically, so I grew up in Silicon Valley in in California, nothing to do with farming. We had a bit of a hobby farm in my teens that I spent time on, very much not a commercial farm. I always say that we grew rocks and squirrels because there was nothing really commercial there. But it had, you know, instilled in me a passion for the environment and for those kinds of communities and and that kind of lifestyle. But very much I was told and and followed the advice at first to go off and kind of make money, you know, focus on your career and then do something that's good for the world or that you're, you know, more interested in. So I I listened for a bit and ended up working in the defense industry, have degrees in in computer science and systems engineering. Through that time, I, I realized that I liked the technology aspect, but actually in that case as well, I was playing a bit of a translator role. So working with quite deep technical people on new radar systems and quite deep satellite and remote sensing systems, but translating it back to what a users actually need. How do we build systems that use this technology to solve real problems? Uh, And then translating it again to project stakeholders or to the marketing team. And so I've always kind of found myself in this translate information to, to different people role, but it just wasn't cutting it for me in terms of the defense industry. I want 
wanted to do something that I was more passionate about and that I wanted to get up every day, you know, working as, as hard as I was because I really believed in it as, as maybe naive as that sounds. And it turned out I, I spent a bunch of time on farms in South America. It was a holiday that I took that turned into more like a accidental gap year where I spent about a year on farms. And that really connected all the dots for me and was why I became so excited about agriculture and ultimately brought the technical background and translator, I guess, intuition and, and capabilities in into this sector, working across farmers and entrepreneurs and investors in agriculture. And then you also are working within the Australian context, which probably adds its own layer of, kind of translation as well. Yes. Well, and I'm not Australian, as, as you can tell, obviously. So we moved here about five years ago for my partner David's job and didn't know anyone landed in Australia. And in some ways got really lucky that Australian agriculture is as powerful and, and high potential as it is. And yet at the time, we weren't doing much in the way of ag tech and this kind of startup ecosystem and these new business models. And so it was an opportunity for someone like myself who had been doing that kind of work in the States to help build the ecosystem here and and bring a lot of those best practices to Australia. So that's what we did originally with Agventic and then ultimately with Tenacious Ventures more recently. And so what is the main comparison between the US and the Australian kind of ag tech market today? Like is the US quite a bit ahead or is there a bit of catch up happening? Yeah, so the US is just much bigger. And so there's more capital and culturally starting a startup is more, I guess, I don't want to say respected, but but just kind of more part of the cultural norm than it is in a place like Australia. And so there's just more of it and more volume of startups and more volume of capital. In ag tech, though, you know, five years ago, Australia didn't didn't have much. But nowadays, you know, any startup solving a problem along the value chain in the US, there's going to be startups doing the same thing here in Australia. So we have quite a vibrant ecosystem here now, but it is, you know, just in size a bit smaller. And we also have some nuances here. You know, there's farming systems like mixed farming and, you know, extensive pastoral systems in the Northern Territory that don't exist in the US. Agriculture here isn't as subsidized or is hardly at all subsidized. And so there's different dynamics here. But a lot of the innovations are, you know, definitely spanning that breadth and, and definitely the same quality as you're seeing in the US as that ecosystem's grown in the last three to five years. Makes sense. And in terms of the actual openness to technology, you know, I'd say generally, you know, again, grew up on a farm. We were probably not the at the most cutting edge of technology adoption. How are farmers adapting to these new technologies as they come online? Yeah. What kind of farm was it, James? It was mixed. So we were 50 acres. We had some cattle, we had mostly sheep. And then we're actually the first organic farm in our area. My mom, she uh, was running the Irish Organic Farmers and Growers Association, IAFCA, for about six years. And so we were well into organic kind of farming in like the mid-90s. Yeah, right. So innovative in, in other ways. And, and I guess that's kind of how I would answer your question is when you think of innovation, if it's, you know, hacking away at a terminal writing software, then, you know, there's some farmers that do that, but a very small minority. If it's innovation in farming systems, in business decisions, in how you manage your staff or how you're planning your operation, then farmers are incredibly innovative. And the kind of 
image of the farmer with the pitchfork and the straw in his teeth is so frustrating because that's just not how farmers are, not how they think. And they are truly pushing the envelope in innovation as much or more than the tech entrepreneurs coming into this space because they've been living and breathing it and seeing the challenges for, you know, decades and, and are starting to change and have been continuing to change, you know, to get things done that that need to that need to be different than they were in the past. And so when you're talking to those tech entrepreneurs, like how much work is it just to get those entrepreneurs up to baseline? Like, you know, you're in a region of agriculture that's actually cutting edge. It used to be like this 10 or 15 years ago, and they've implemented these 10 things, right? And so, mm. you know, relative to some of the other areas of agriculture. Yeah, I mean, that's probably you've hit the nail on the head and that agriculture is super broad in itself. You know, are we talking about specialty crops and perennial systems? Are we talking with irrigation plans? Are we talking about really extensive systems where you're using helicopters to muster cattle? Are we talking about intensive indoor horticulture systems in greenhouses with high technology or, you know, intensive animal production? So uh, there's no one kind of agriculture. For sure, the view that many probably consumers or, or early entrepreneurs on this journey would have of, you know, planting or harvesting or farming, whatever it is, are, are often wrong. And so they need to get out and spend time with those farmers and in that industry that they're trying to work with. The other thing I would say, though, James, is that many of the entrepreneurs we work with are increasingly coming with some kind of ag context because they, you know, maybe they grew up on a farm or maybe they had an experience like I did and went and lived on farms for a number of years, or maybe they worked in the industry in a kind of, you know, agronomy role or, or sales role or something. And so it's not just people from the outside coming in. And in fact, in many cases, it's farmers themselves who are solving their own problem and then thinking about how to scale those businesses. So again, there's no one kind of tech entrepreneur that looks a certain way or a certain age or profile, but a whole range of innovators that all look different and have different contexts, maybe more on the tech side or more on the ag side, depending on where they come from. That makes sense. And I suppose another aspect of the a translation layer is around timing, right? You know, the, the traditional kind of tech startup, very rapid iteration, whereas with a farm, depending on the crop, you might be talking 12 months before you see any difference, right? You know, I suppose what is your general approach or advice to, you know, founders who are struggling maybe with, with that kind of breakdown? How do you iterate rapidly when you have like an annual timeline? Yeah, definitely. It's a real challenge and actually was some of my early interest in this space because when we look at innovation programs like accelerators and incubators, they often talk about, you know, you come in and three months later, you launch an MVP and raise money. And well, if those three months didn't coincide with when you were planting and harvesting something, like maybe you didn't try anything at all in that three months. And so does that really work to support innovation? That said, you know, there's lots of ways to get feedback on your product and to work early and, and frequently with users, whether that's trialing in different geographies, whether that's getting feedback on versions of the product that aren't the actual product, or if, if it comes down to needing to you know get trials in, in a field and see what happens over a 6, 9, 12, 18 month period, then it's much more about managing and communicating those expectations. The worst outcome is when you overpromise and underdeliver, whether that's to a grower or to an investor. And so if it needs to take that long, then you know, build your business plan and your runway and, and everything you're doing, your milestones around that need. And, you know, you can manage risk as much as possible, but if it needs to take that long, it needs to take that long. And there's no use hiding it because you are working with a natural system and some investors and will get that and, and others might not, but they're probably not going to be a fit for you anyways. And in terms of the kind of overarching kind of ecosystems, you have the farmers, you have tech entrepreneurs, 
you have investors, which you kind of briefly mentioned there, but you also have the consumers and you have these large agri-businesses, right? How do they kind of play into this picture and how do they interact? I mean, it very much depends. One of the big challenges for entrepreneurs, just to give an example in agriculture is how do you get your product to farmers? So you might meet your first couple customers at conferences or on Twitter, or on podcasts, because they're out actively searching for and engaging on the tech side. But after your first dozen or couple dozen, where do you find the rest? And often you're going to need to go through some kind of channel. So working with existing distributors, whether that's in equipment or in, in retail, seeds, chem, et cetera. And that's a big role for the existing agribusinesses to play is being that distribution channel to farmers. And it's really interesting now that we see the business model of those players starting to shift, whether it's more to biological inputs than chemical or more to digital offerings instead of hardware. But that's where there's some really interesting innovation happening, whether it's more you know online instead of in person, looking at e-commerce, what's the role of those channels in supporting the farmer to implement and get value out of those technologies as much as just sell them. Uh, there's lots of room for growth and innovation in that space. And that's where we see a lot of corporates really focused. And those growth and innovation kind of pressures, are they coming all the way at the end of the value chain from the, the consumer or is it the farmer or is it a mix and, and where the pressure points are appearing? Yeah, it's a mix. I mean, you can't go to an ag conference nowadays without hearing, well, we've got to feed the 10 billion people in the world and climate variability and resource risk. We're running out of water and drought and bushfires and all of those things are true. So there's really no shortage of pressures, whether it's environmental or, you know, consumers wanting different things or trade. There are it, it's quite a volatile environment and quite challenging to adapt to. And definitely that's where the role of technology and innovation can play a big part. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, like sometimes a founder is looking at their latte, they may not even kind of think that the milk that went into the latte, right, and that entire like chain back to an agricultural product. And I think that's a general issue with consumers, particularly in you know, the developed world, where there is that lack of connection with the, the end farmer. Is there a way of bridging that gap between the end consumer all the way to the farmer without having to use all of these kind of middle and wholesalers and, and large agribusinesses as the connecting element? I suppose you could have like the organic kind of farm sale down in the corner, but anything that could work at scale. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people trying this in, in really different ways. We've had a couple in our world recently. We did a podcast with the guys at Sikila Patron or the consumer brand, which is an example out of the UK where they have basically built a brand where consumers vote on what they want to see. So what kind of practices they want to see and how much they want to pay the farmers. And they've built their own brand that's in many of the major retailers, at least in France so far, I'm really flipping the model on its head to say, okay, consumers, if you want something, tell us what you want and tell us how much you pay. And if they'll produce it, they'll produce it. And if they'll pay, they'll pay. So technologies and the kind of access we have between the consumer end and the farmer end are really starting to shift those dynamics. I mean, the other example would be carbon. So there's lots of people looking at carbon markets and carbon credits and carbon sequestration through farming practices and big companies paying real money to offset their carbon footprint and, and offer these things to their consumers. And farmers can play a role in that. You know, soil carbon sequestration is one of the cheapest methods to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And so you get this really interesting connection between a consumer who says, I want to buy this product and I want to know that it wasn't harming the environment 
And increasingly, I want to be able to recognize the farmer who made that possible and ideally reward them, whether it's through a premium or some kind of other mechanism like a carbon market or some kind of offset or a label on the product. We're just seeing tons of innovation in this space that goes well beyond what we used to have, which was really just kind of organic or, or not. So on the, on the kind of carbon offset model, you know, there, there was a lot of kind of energy in that space, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, kind of died down. And it definitely seems to have kind of returned over the last two or three years where a lot of, as you said, a lot of cool companies also in the US that I've spoken to. You know, one of the criticisms or, or concerns with a lot of the carbon accounting was, you know, things like double counting, you know, the correct timelines of how do you assess, you know, recarbonization within the soil or like forestry, et cetera. As was, what's your, what are your kind of general thoughts on that and, and maybe, you know, ways of getting around some of those limitations? Mm, yeah, I mean, in Australia right now, we have the Emissions Reduction Fund or Carbon Solutions Fund, which is you know, globally recognized as a standard. One of the challenges with that is that it's really cumbersome for farmers to register projects and it requires all kinds of intermediaries and there's lots of inefficiencies in that market. So couple areas we've looked at in terms of how to overcome that. One would be on the measurement and verification and validation side. So how do we have technologies that make it way easier to know that this practice is sequestering a ton of carbon or is doing whatever we say it's doing that has an environmental benefit? Because right now, measuring some of those things is impossible, expensive, or just really hard and, and inconvenient. And so making it easier to know that what we're doing, we're actually doing is a big area. So that's one kind of set of technologies and, and businesses we've been looking at. The other would be the marketplace aspects. And to your point, James, how do we build confidence that we're not double counting? And we've looked at some pretty interesting kind of cryptocurrency methods and cryptographic methods, more importantly, for making sure that we aren't double counting and that when we are reporting someone, you know, they're, it's in a transparent market that we can't take advantage of. So lots of areas, you know, being explored. And I think the solutions that will win will remember that at the end of the day, there's incentive questions that we need to answer. And, and if we're talking about farmers, you know, how do we fit into their systems and, and how they work? not impose some extra burden on them because they're busy running their farms in, in the highly volatile environment I was talking about before. And so how do we make sure we're fitting in with the users, not adding some extra burden for them without an incentive? And a lot of farmers have a perspective on, you know, this is getting beaten up upon a little bit, right, by various kind of regulations and so on. Often, you know, Australia and the U.S. generally have larger kind of holdings of, of land, but, you know, adding carbon kind of regulations on top of all the other existing kind of frameworks that they have to maintain is something that I've spoken to a lot of farmers feeling frustrated by. So I definitely echo that, you know, there needs to be a way that to get everybody on, on side. I mean, one of the things that I was talking to somebody about was like, you know, even a marketing kind of concept of hero farmers, you know, save the world kind of thing, right? Like, hmm. obviously, that's, a, that's not a very good version of it. You know, you can get a better branding, but something along those lines as a way of uh, getting around that. Yeah, I mean, we're doing a series right now on our on our podcast on regenerative agriculture, and it's been fascinating to understand how controversial and polarizing that term can be. And it's for exactly that reason where some people have used regenerative agriculture to say, you know, you're a good farmer. And if you're not doing this, then you're a bad farmer. But that is overly simplified. And the farming practices that are good in one area might not be the farming practices that are good in another area. And, and yet you still have the challenge of giving consumers something where they can make a snap judgment and, you know, buy the carton of eggs and not have to understand 17 things about how eggs are produced. So it's, it's, really quite a complex issue, but I worry a little bit about 
oversimplifying from a marketing perspective without that underpinning of truth, whether and, and that will come through technology to know that a ton of carbon was truly sequestered because these practices were done or this other thing, you know, did we did have this biodiversity outcome because we've measured it through this kind of technology. And so the key for me is in how do we make that measurement and that validation and verification much more cost effective because otherwise it's everyone's just competing on best marketing and people are starting to lose trust in, you know, what do we actually buy? Right, and the concept of greenwashing kind of emerges, exactly. and, et cetera. And so you mentioned earlier the idea of labeling. So, you know, is there anything that we can learn from calorie labeling, which, you know, has been ineffective or effective depending on how, it, how it's happened historically? And we do think about things like carbon labeling or, you know, water input labeling, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, to your point, exactly making it pretty easy for consumers to draw the line between the decision they're trying to make and the information they're getting. The example I find fascinating is nowadays you can like scan a QR code on a carton of eggs and see you know, how many hens per hectare there were. And even if you work in agriculture, if you don't work in the egg industry, like how are you supposed to know how many hens per hectare is a good number of hens per hectare? And are they the right kind of hens? And what are they eating? And like, I, I don't know anything about egg production. And so how would I choose this card of eggs versus that? And so you default back to price or marketing. And that's really the challenge is how do we present the information to consumers in a way that matches how they want to make decisions, but has the underpinning of a system with enough rigor where we know it's actually true and can validate and, and verify. And there's some interesting things, right? You can imagine if for those consumers, the small number that really care, you know, they can log onto whatever website at home and pull up the satellite imagery at some point and see that farm. And so we're not too far away from a world where you can kind of independently as a consumer do your own spot check and, you know, then put that on social media and then that brand loses credibility. So soon and increasingly technology will take away the ability to just differentiate on, on marketing and hopefully cut down some of that greenwashing or the term I heard the other day was regen washing. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like too many words. <laughs> and so will things like then that kind of social pressure, like in, in, in the kind of medium term, let's say in a 10 to 20 year time horizon, in your view, will that have a larger impact on actual true decarbonization of the agricultural sector? Or are we still very dependent on government regulation stepping in and putting the, the pressure at scale? Mm, yeah, it's. I mean, it's both. I mean, the private sector, I believe, will drive the solutions and the pressure will continue to be there from, from consumers. But government can for sure play a role in the enabling conditions and making sure that we have the incentives in the right places and that they are not over-engineering the solution or prescribing the solution, but more focusing on those enabling conditions. So I think it has to be both. I mean, the challenges ahead of us are so big that we need both private sector and public sector intervention because otherwise it's it's a losing battle for everyone. 100%, yeah. And, and again, you can see these different speeds happening, you know, within the US, within Australia, Canada, Europe, all going, you know, different levers. I don't think any are going probably as fast as we would like, but I guess we can learn across these different regions about what seems to be working or not working. Mm. What are your views then on the kind of wider ESG environmental social governments kind of model? And so the lever being a financial, you know, you get onto an ESG index, you might get better exposure to a certain type of asset manager, et cetera, as like a, a large lever to be used as well. 
Hmm, yeah. When I was in grad school, I wrote my master's thesis on venture capital and corporate venture capital in ag and ag tech with a kind of impact investing lens. And, and that was really my original question to the 70 plus investors I interviewed was, okay, you're in you're in agriculture and you're thinking about impact investing. You know, How do you think about impact? Are you mapping to the UN sustainable development goals or what reporting frameworks are you using, B corporations, et cetera, et cetera. And without fail, the first you know, 10 or 15 answers I got were, were in agriculture. And so it's impact. What do you mean? And, and I was like, oh, okay. So I guess the sophistication around measuring these things and reporting, you know, it's still largely aspirational and in some cases just marketing. That's changed quite significantly in the last five, seven years where now there are these more rigorous frameworks and increasingly good data on the fact that these ESG assets do perform better. And that's driving more capital in the space and starting to, again, create the incentives for better reporting, better measurement, better data collection. And so that's increasingly critical and, and, and we need both, right? We need the demand side and we need the frameworks to help actually measure. For us as a fund, you know, we think about impact through the lens of carbon neutral and climate change resilient. There's a bit of flexibility in there. What does climate change resilient mean? But we think having that flexibility is really important because farmers are going to need to be resilient. And for every different farm, that might require different solutions. And so we stay true to that kind of mission. And then on an individual portfolio company level, report on the metrics that matter for that company, because we want that impact to be aligned with their commercial outcomes as well, not have impact be something that's kind of separate. We really want it baked into their DNA. So we've got a kind of fund level and then a per company level reporting framework that we use. That makes sense. And just because you mentioned the kind of the venture capital that you're involved in, you know, from as an outsider looking in at VC, particularly in the States, I'm not sure what situation is in Australia, but it looks like there's been kind of a chronically underrating of clean tech. And, you know, clean tech hits so many different true sectors of the economy. Like that, that's a vague enough word. But particularly around ag tech in the US seems to be a very small segment of the total, total VC kind of world. Would you agree? Like, has there been this underrating of clean tech companies or is it more the companies just haven't been there? And so the money hasn't flowed into that space. Yeah. I mean, a ch chicken and egg problem. I would say we're still experiencing the hangover from the clean tech bubble and people being, you know, still a bit gun shy coming out of the last wave of, of clean tech and people drawing parallels to agriculture. So there's still concern around that. Increasingly, though, I mean, especially with coronavirus, people are starting to think about core assets and infrastructure and investment areas and, and agriculture is coming back to the forefront of that as both an absolutely critical part of us needing to eat and feed the future, but also an impact area. And so that's driving more money in, in the space, especially in recent times, uh, which I think is really exciting because that capital does have both a commercial and an impact lens and are seeing food and agriculture as, as an opportunity and, and a place to deploy money for doing good and doing well, as you would say. But that said, you're exactly right, James. It is still a bit of a drop in the bucket in terms of global venture capital. And we see it increasing and, and growing as an asset class. But as we've been talking about, you know, for the last half hour, it's hard to understand having those networks, distribution change, there's lots of challenges. And so it's not, I don't know if there are any easy sectors to invest in, but if there are, agriculture is definitely not one of them. And do we need to wait for some like reasonable size exits in the space as well to kind of attract it? Or um, will we see enough kind of of the fundamentals, some of those KPIs move over the next two or three years that we can potentially see VC capital raised without having the, you know, 10 exit peer companies to look at. Yeah, I mean, there have been lots of exits and there are lots of um, dedicated funds as well as non-sector specific funds, generalist tech funds investing in this space. So back in 2012, the Climate 
corporation was acquired by Monsanto for about a billion dollars. That was one of the first exits in the space, but there's been dozens since at various scales and in various areas of the supply chain. What we haven't seen is a bunch of you know, brand name companies that were the kind of darlings get acquired really quickly because in ag, you know, some of them are upstream acquisitions in the ag chem space. Some of them are around biologicals. Some of them are around equipment. And so depending on where you're looking, you might kind of miss other exits that have happened. But if you're tracking the space, there have been, you know, many acquisitions in the past five, eight, 10 years uh, and increasingly a lot of capital and dedicated funds coming into the space. So it's definitely growing. I see. And, you know, I think you also kind of connect through Authentic, help startups, founders kind of meet investors potentially. What are the main things you look at to ensure a good match between a founder and a specific investor? Yeah. So maybe just to, to clarify there, because I wear a couple hats. So Authentic was the advisory firm I founded when I came to Australia. And we initially did do a lot of work with startups, exactly as you say. Now that we have Tenacious Ventures, which is our venture capital fund, all of the startup work we do is in the fund because for somewhat obvious reasons. We don't want to be advising startups, but also investing in them because it can create conflicts and be a bit messy. So Agthentic still does advisory work with clients, but Tenacious is where we do the work with startups. So now we're in some ways kind of on the other side of the table, but we do still genuinely try to be as helpful as we can and, and want to get to know founders early and be you know give them those tips and advice, whether they end up pitching to us or someone else. So the big things are, you know, team, who, who's your team and of course, you know, your your technology, but actually the biggest one is probably your business model. And that one's often overlooked because everyone talks about their team and everyone talks about how great their technology is. But as we were speaking about before, how do you actually get to market? What is your business model? How do you create and capture value? How will you acquire customers more than just those few early adopters that you might meet at conferences and through your you know, website? So it's really that business model that we at Tenacious look for and that we would advise founders to really think about in agriculture is looking beyond that technology, but how are you actually going to go to market and capture value long-term? And are there particular business models in the space that, you know, generally work better than others? Hard to say. I mean, it's it's so it's so big and each company and each product would need a different business model. The two things we coach and, and emphasize and look for is how do you acquire customers? So your kind of acquisition loop and then how do you retain customers? So your retention loop and how do you make your business model such that those are reinforcing loops that grow over time? And obviously that's how you can get to, to high growth and, and to sustainable growth is through thinking about how you're creating and capturing value in both the acquisition process and the retention process. So no different probably than any other industry in terms of the fund fundamentals of business models, but definitely some nuances around, as we said before, distribution and channels and supply chain and natural systems and timelines. Those are, those are where that kind of rubber meets the road and each company needs to figure out their own business model and what insights they bring that others might not. That makes sense. I mean, I've looked at some kind of companies that have a SaaS kind of monthly recurring revenue kind of model in the space. And then there's also some kind of transaction-based marketplaces as well. You know, those are generally more net difficult, but if they get scale or, you know, can be very good businesses as well. Uh, do, you, do you see a similar kind of divide between those two broad business models in, in, in Australia? Sure. We, we see lots of those. We see combination hardware software business models. We see marketplaces, et cetera. One maybe interesting dynamic is how farmers feel about recurring revenue, about, about being on the other side of a SaaS business model and paying that monthly fee when they're used to owning something outright can be a challenge in agriculture. And so we speak 
with and work with a lot of farmers who in some cases understand that that makes sense and they're actually getting the improvements of that product over time. And that's why they're paying a subscription for that service and others who want to own it outright and are really frustrated by having to pay every month or every year ongoing. Uh, and so understanding the psychology and you know emotions and incentives of your customers is absolutely critical in designing your business model, but it doesn't mean that anyone is good or bad necessarily. That makes sense. And you mentioned COVID a little bit earlier and how that has you know refocused the mind around the length of supply chains for, for many countries around the world. So you know, will that in general lead to kind of greater localization that people will just want their food grown closer to home? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really hard to know, of course, but sure. people are thinking about food in a way that, that we haven't in a while. You know, most of us have had the experience of going to a grocery store and not having the thing we want be there at some point in the last six months. And, and that can be a um, really unfamiliar experience for some and has made us think about um, food security. So we're seeing new models, you know, farmers looking to go more direct to consumer or growth of those kinds of brands because they do have that consumer trust and can use technology to sell online or deliver in a you know box every week and yet at scale that can fall over for a number of reasons you know how do we have a food system that's direct to consumer the reason we've built a food system with intermediaries is for the efficiencies that that they can provide so yes yeah, still a bit of an open question but where i'm excited is that technology and new business models that entrepreneurs are bringing can enable both kinds of food systems to exist at the same time and increasing flexibility for us as consumers. So one day we can get a meal kit box delivered from our, you know, whatever regen organic carbon neutral farmer. And the next day, you know, go have a McDonald's burger, you know, if, if that's what we want. And so we have that choice and producers have more flexibility and resilience in the supply chain options that they have to sell into uh, and the kinds of business models that they want. And that's really exciting. Instead of just having one kind of system that everyone has to fit into, we have more choice and more flexibility and therefore more resilience. It's like this kind of concept from uh, Nassim Taleb of like anti-fragile, right? If you distribute the risk throughout lots and lots of little systems, you don't have like these kind of mass failures that, that we've seen this year. Yeah, I think that's right. And no one silver bullet answer there. But, you know, increasingly we're seeing producers really consider what the future business model will be for them. Do they want to sell into a you know commodity supply chain where they're largely price takers or consider some way to capture more of that value for themselves and you know set the price own the brand etc create more value do value adding on farm and that's possible now through new technologies and through the internet in ways that it never was before and and that's really exciting and one of the things i've noticed with large fortune 500 companies in the states you know we saw apple not in yeah, business obviously, but make these decarbonization pledges a couple of weeks ago. McDonald's has made similar. And often uh, it seems like the supply chain actually is caught somewhat unawares. I'm sure the very, very large wholesale kind of people in the middle are not, but but often it seems to be the case. What are your views on that? Like how much should a supply chain be working together when there are these kind of major decarbonization moves versus you end up in these situations where there's a competitiveness around the decarbonization where a large company like McDonald's could be like, look, this is the new, the new world. Figure out yourselves. Whoever actually hits the targets with this price will, will stay with. Otherwise, we'll move. Yeah, it's a super complicated 
question because supply chains are so complex. We're doing a bit of work in this space actually and, and really digging into what has and hasn't worked in terms of rollout of new technology into supply chains. And one of the key insights is that you really do need a big player in the system that's going to drive change because as much as we can all say this would be good and here's the business case and here's the value getting everyone on board with the change every you know ounce of our human psychology around loss aversion and adopting new things is working against us and so it often does take someone with more power in the supply chain who says thou shalt do this thing to get it to actually happen and where we've seen a lot of failures is when however well-meaning, you know, a, a government can be or a kind of industry body can be to say, you know, we need this thing, it's going to really help industry, it just doesn't get adopted. And lots of money and time is wasted. So in some ways, while we can criticize or, or be skeptical of the the change that these big initiatives can have, especially at first when everyone's kind of caught off guard, and we don't know how it's going to play out, history has shown us that having someone with that power to roll something out can actually be one of the only ways that that things actually get adopted and do change. Yeah, and that definitely matches up with some of the conversations I've been having with some of those big players. And and often like there's a kind of a relief, right? Because you know, you're the board of somebody like a company within the supply chain and you can say, look, the board of McDonald's or whoever else like are, have caused the change, right? And so you can kind of nearly shift the blame and just now we're in response mode. Mm, yeah, exactly. And so broadening it out a little bit, you know, you obviously see a lot of companies who are working in the kind of carbon zero kind of, kind of space, carbon resiliency space. What is the largest climate problem that no one seems to be tackling or there's not enough investment within? I suppose that's a little like, you know, I I sit here with a hammer and so everything look, looks to me like a nail and, and my nail is ag tech. And so I just, uh, you know, innovation in the food system, maybe pushing myself. So, yeah, I mean, the answer that comes readily to mind is incentivizing and rewarding farmers for sequestering more carbon and for the practices that they are already doing or could be doing that would have really positive environmental outcomes and making sure we're paying the true cost of of what our food costs to produce. So that's one. There's some really interesting work in sea-based uh, agriculture and, and, and offshore and the potential to sequester carbon in, in the oceans. I think that's a fascinating area with a lot more study to be done and obviously potential unintended consequences there, you know, what, what would happen at, at large scale of decarbonization through the blue economy is there's some very fascinating, interesting and challenging questions. The other area we're, you know, thinking a lot about is as we move into more autonomy and, and more robotics and, and automation in food and agriculture, what does that equipment run on? Is it is it electric? Is it run through other alternative fuel sources? And how do we make sure that as we add more equipment, that that's as efficient as possible and, and not increasing the the emissions footprint or emissions intensity of, of agricultural production? So lots of innovations in other areas, in, in automotive, transport, et cetera, blending in with agriculture. And, and that's really exciting to see those lines being blurred and crossed and gaining the efficiencies of, of work that's been done in other industries. Yeah, those all sound very exciting. Also, you know, one of the things a lot of people get excited by, but, you know, it's sometimes hard for me to see scaling are kind of these more sci-fi kind of initiatives like vertical farming or uh, stem cell meats. What are your views on those, again, over, let's say, a 20-year time horizon? Like, will they have a major impact on decarbonization and, and some of these sustainability moves? Or is that is the timeline for those even further out? 
Hmm. Yeah, it's a question worth millions, if not billions of dollars for sure, James. So uh, I would say the, yeah, our, my view is probably what I, what I said before, that we'll see a food system that has many different kinds of production. And so that will include cellular agriculture, will include fermented products, it will include hybrid alternative and conventional or regular, normal, whatever you want to call it, meat. And it will include indoor farming and outdoor farming. So we'll see these kind of hybrid systems and increasingly mixed types of production increasingly because again the challenges that we face are are really large and so we need all kinds of systems to solve them in particular you know, we look at it through an investment lens in in those areas and so it's a pretty different question when you say um, do we want to see this change in the world from an impact perspective versus would i invest in that business versus would i invest in that business to make money in the next 10 years and those you know, can be different answers so but but it's also challenging i mean that like i'm giving you kind of yes but if and answers which which i appreciate like with cellular agriculture a lot of the data is around the system that it runs on being fully through renewable energy. That's not currently possible or happening. We also talk about, you know, replacing certain types of agricultural production, but not, you know, with animals, but not others. And there's lots of good research that animals as part of a rotational grazing system can sequester carbon in the soil. And so do we want to replace those animals, et cetera, et cetera. So where I end up on these issues, other than kind of blabbering on and thinking in circles is there's no one answer. And it's much more about creating a food system that has diversity and resilience and different business models and different forms of production. And the only way we're going to do that is through more innovation and technology and investment, because otherwise those new systems won't be brought to bear and won't be as efficient and have the decarbonizing potential that they could. So we definitely need more super smart people and, and capital thinking about these problems, but there isn't likely to be one answer. Fantastic. Yeah. And and again, it goes back to that kind of resiliency. And, you know, if there was one answer, that's probably worrying as well. So th- this has been absolutely great. Just before we finish up, you know, you also host your own podcast, right? And so if you're interviewing yourself, is there any question you would have asked yourself that I didn't? I don't know. I, I probably, not that I can think of. I often get asked, you know, why did I come to Australia, which we talked a little bit about. Hmm. It really kind of depends on your podcast. I genuinely waver on how much to ask guests about like, what's your favorite book? And what do you like to do outside of the thing that you're doing? And I find that stuff interesting, but I'm not sure any of my listeners do. So yeah, I don't have good answers on that. So don't ask me that. <laughs> well, I'll give you one, one side of a different question then. So let's say because you have had this kind of fascinating kind of background, if you know, the next generation analog of what you've kind of gotten into and achieved, uh, what would your advice to that person be to kind of become that next generation analog? Yeah. One thing that has made me have the success to to whatever degree I've had thus far is creating content. And so whether it's starting a podcast, we've got a newsletter, we run meetup events, a blog and write articles, and that has paid 10, 20, 30, 50x dividends in terms of both learning about the space, making connections with people I otherwise wouldn't have met, and starting to build your you know, group of people that care about the same issues you do. And so if you're, you know, my, my advice to myself would have been to do that earlier and to anyone else would be, you know, get into the content space and it can be as selfishly motivated or as altruistically motivated. It, it doesn't really matter, but you start to just get huge benefits in both learning and, and connecting. Uh, so that would be my, my number one. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And I'll just add, you also get a huge amount of discipline. Now I'm on a weekly schedule here with this podcast. Started <laughs> off twice a month, and now uh, we, we are disciplined. So this has been absolutely fantastic, Sarah. Thank you very much for your time. 
No worries, James, and well done on the uh, more frequent podcast. It's it's a tough one to do, so more power to you. <laughs> no worries, I appreciate it.